Hello and welcome to Happy Bear Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. Yeah, great to have you. Thanks, Mel. Yeah, really, thanks for your attention and we hopefully will not disappoint. That is our hope. What's yeah. this podcast about, Dave? This podcast is about health, well-being, happiness, which sounds so cheap, but really is an exploration, a conversation with people. We've been in this industry for 20 years and ourselves have been on this journey and we have conversations with people that inspire us in terms of health, well-being, pushing the limits, connecting more to yourself and having a better relationship with yourself Becoming and this experience of beings. life. Yes. Yeah, becoming human. Yeah, maybe it's becoming human, coming home, having a better relationship with yourself so that you can come home more. more. connected, wholesome humans. And yeah. just like learn more and open yeah. your minds a bit more, really. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, today's been, or not today, this week's been quite busy and last week. What, was, almost, your, what was your highlight? It almost feels like summer. Like, so we're at the peak of summer here right now and it almost feels like, like there's just this, uh, I know this might be published at a later date, so I'm allowed to say that, uh, just to put that in. Uh, but in terms of, uh, like I often imagine when there is this heat like this, there's just more life, more growth, more activity. And it seems to reflect in your life, in my life anyway. It's like, it's like super extrovert. It's just like this on and this on and this on and this on and this on. It's just like, Whoa! You I think over the last 10 days, I've had a minimum of eight people for dinner in my house every All the night. Time. Or, yeah, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. It's been every very time, social. Every time I'm at your house past a certain time, I notice food's coming and I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm staying. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, you're, you've, you've been part of the eight quite a few times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, no, we've had incredible times. There was Dr. Neetu and her husband. Like we, we filmed, and who were they? And what we filmed are they a happy menopause course with a senior consultant gynecologist and a, a bone doctor. Yeah. Her husband, the bone doctor and her, and her daughter, nutritionist. Who's, her daughter Ro, Ro, who's a nutritionist, which that, that's really exciting. That's a course all about menopause. And then we filmed one with a sleep doctor and a neurologist, Dr. Oliver. And they both stayed with me, which was super fun to get to spend time and connect with them and show our crazy world and bring them swimming. There's and gas having Oliver there. So Oliver was there uh, in my house having tea with a friend, John, who was um, a Buddhist monk for 10 years. And we had a wonderful conversation around semen retention. Yes. It's so funny because this is the second time you've talked about it. And then when I was with talking to Sam, who was also a part of the conversation, he was like, only for like five minutes of the whole conversation was about semen retention. Well, that touched <laughs> Stephen the most, obviously. Yeah, was what did you learn about semen retention then, Steve? Yeah. Uh, but well, it's interesting because when we did the sex series, like Amy Kill and Dr. Amy Kill and all the others, they kind of poo-pooed semen yeah. retention. Not they poo-pooed, it just it wasn't really explored in science. No, they, like, yeah, they talked about it very much from the scientific point of view. And they did say one thing, though, that I think there was warrant for two days. But beyond two days, there's no studies to show any benefit of holding. Yeah, but where, where John was talking about And you want to clean it, the pipes as well. Mm. Yeah, where John was talking about it was the, that semen retention was enabling you to sublimate or transcend this kind of almost dominant, prolific, emo prolific emotion to send to transcend it up into heartfelt connection and love. But I do find it interesting. It's, very, a bit, it's pretty woo-woo. Like, it, it was, it's yeah. cool. I, I really find it interesting. It's woo-woo, but, like, I hope people don't mind talking about this so much, but, you know, it takes a lot of energy out of you when you ejaculate like that. Supposedly. So, yep. Yeah, so is there some connection to spiritual, you know, in, you know, your drive for the rest of the day based on if you've ejaculated or not? Also, what we learned from Dr. Aaron Spitz was um, the association with adrenaline with... Um, ejaculation as well when you do ejaculate that your adrenaline goes up yeah so. well and also you you can't 
be a high on adrenaline to ejaculate because yeah, adrenaline does the opposite and stops yeah, it. Yeah. So no, I don't know. Anyway, there might be something there. Yeah, seam retention. Yes, no, let us know. <laughs> we're not sure. But certainly from a Taoist philosophy, because I remember we were when we were 25, someone gave us this book and at the time it was our Bible. Like it really was. It was uh, The Multi-Orgasmic Man. And it was it was this book all about like saving your seed, so semen retention, and learning to kind of experience sex without or without orgasming so you could like keep without going. Without ejaculating. Without ejaculating, that the difference between orgasm and ejaculation was slightly different so that you could experience all the highs without going over the edge of the cliff and being in control and going, yeah! And I remember we were totally into it for a good while. How old were you then? And like 24 or something. That's and pretty, I used to buy it for loads of people. Yeah. That's pretty loads progressive for a 24-year-old. Yeah, well, curiosity. You know, anyway, we're curious anybody creatures. else uh, double uh, on this? Highs of the week. <laughs> okay, well, maybe let's move along now. Okay, final high, final high, Stephen Flynn. No. Yeah, I, I find I can't even remember yesterday because it's just like the, well, there's yeah. so much going on. Oh, Sam left. Yeah, Sam left. Farm. Oh, Farm Supper Club. So I'm loving. So we started doing supper clubs um, every second Friday evening in Church Road, and it gives it what's Church out. Road. So that's our our main cafe and shop and bakery. And then we started kind of open up like restaurant in the evenings, and we're calling it a supper club. And like this, forty to fifty people can come. And this one was our farm supper club. So it was like literally using the produce from the farm. It's a great opportunity for the chefs to like show their creativity. This plating up so you can be a little bit fancier it's fun to go in and serve people everyone sits down it feels real like this is such fun playing restaurant you know that feeling and then then often like when it's fully booked Dave Dave said there's, there's 10 of us can I book for 10 it was like Dave no we're fully booked so Dave sat out the back with Raj and, the, and Sarah and uh, the rest and they ordered Indian and then they waited for scraps any bits that were left scraps over scraps from the kitchen yeah. so it's like it's almost like the kitchen oh, I um, loved it. the chef's table because it's yeah. like you're getting given yeah. it's and that's very fun. My and final highlight of the week, which isn't a highlight really, was Sam, who who we will have a we've recorded a podcast with a lovely friend, Sam Corlett, an Australian man who's super super lovely. He's kind of become a family member of our home. Really, uh, he's been coming for dinner there for the last three years most nights and, uh, and he left to head off in his travels. He's been here filming a TV show for six months of the last three years, and he left, which was I guess that was a. a a moment, yeah. you know, we had nice dinners last night. Hi, maybe off. isn't the word, but nice Hi to celebrate. Word, but a nice but a moment to celebrate a, mo- a wonderful human. Nice to take a moment and celebrate someone who we care for and has, yeah. we've made beautiful connections with. Yeah, it was a lovely end to say goodbye. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. we'll see him loads more again. Yes. And yes. one one thing, I mean, it was a couple of weeks ago, but shout out to Shawnee Cahill, who did the King of Grey Sounds. Well, nice. on local that news, on local yeah. news, Shawnee Cahill. There he is, his king of Greystone's water bottle. He's sitting in the background here doing his magic. Shawnee Cahill, yeah. you will always be our king of praise. Yes. You will always be the king, king of, of Shelbyville. <laughs> Bray's, but I'd rather be the king of Bray. <laughs> so well, Sean, that was Sean lives in Bray and loves Bray and one day will run for mayor in Bray. Bray Maybe. is about 20 minutes up the road from Greystones. Uh, yeah. Up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 anyway, anyway, moving swiftly along. Um, okay, this week's podcast is with a friend, the wonderful John McAvoy. John, if you're not familiar with, we recorded an episode with him back in the past years ago a year ago and john is most known to be a reformed uh, double life sentence serving um bank robber robber, um who lived within the maximum one of the most maximum security prisons in all of europe where it was a prison within a prison he spent more than a year in the you know the the prison within the prison where he didn't get out for 24 hours a day for more than a year so he really did experience this and true segregation somehow with true sport he ended up he started training a little bit in his cell and then realized that he could uh, 
he could spend more time in the gym if he decided to row a million miles. I think it was something like a million miles. He got to spend more time in the gym doing this, which was out of his cell. So he started doing that. The warden actually saw him training, saw he had talent, and he ended up breaking a breaking, number of world records and using the medium of sport to kind of free himself from prison. Made it out of prison. He made it out of prison and got a pardon from the Secretary of State and is now has subsequently became the only Nike-sponsored triathlete in the world. And he's now a professional athlete that lives in Alp d'Huez and trains and does all and sorts really of incredible works hard events. hard to try to be a light for kind of teenagers in a similar position that are on the brink of kind of, you know, kind of going into these institutions. And he really tries to be a light to show that they don't have to do that and to be an advocate that sport is a wonderful vehicle for, for transformation. Yeah, and recently he told us over the last, last time we talked to him, he was at on the verge and the precipice of becoming plant-based and adopting a vegan diet. And in this episode, we really talk about his experience with being a professional athlete and diet and eating 15 to 20,000 calories a day on a plant-based diet, competing in races and how his performance has just skyrocketed. We also talk about spirituality, gratitude and so many different things. And really, he's a shiny, beautiful man that I learned so much from. So, yeah. so uh, without further ado, just before we give you John McAvoy, we just want to pay the bills. So, And ladies and gentlemen, we give you the wonderful John McAvoy. Okay, you know the way when you're young and you get a new pair of shoes and you're like, I can run so much faster because of my new shoes. Well, certainly we were like that anyway. Um, but we've been wearing Vivo shoes for the last five years. What are Vivo shoes? Vivos are barefoot shoes or minimal footwear, as they're also known as. And uh, yeah, well, we've been wearing... Why, why should I wear them? Well, the main reason I find is that they're really beneficial for your ankles, your knees, your hips and your back. Like your feet are your foundation in terms of your posture and your alignment. And we take our feet for granted. And Vivo Barefoot Shoes, they really help uh, engage your feet. They build your muscles by 60% within your feet. That's what studies have shown. Yeah, and, and typically what happens is that most people don't realize you have the same amount of nerve endings in your feet as you do in your hands. And like, it's amazing even just how you interact with the world differently when you can feel the earth that you're standing on. It's like, you know, like walking into the beach is these like bumpy little bits. And when you walk over the bumpy bits and you're wearing Vivos, you feel it and it feels like, oh, that feels nice. And then there's a and, smooth And bit. one more interesting fact is that 25% of your bones and ligaments and tendons are from your ankle and below. So we there's so much within our feet and we don't take give them as much kudos as we should. And anyway, Vivo Barefoot Shoes, they're class. It's a wonderful company. It's a B Corp, so it's all about sustainability. They use recycled plastics, recycled materials. They're a very ethically minded business. We've been working with them for the last five years. And, and that's all we wear and we think they're wonderful. So they're offering a 100-day free trial on their footwear. So literally, there's no risk. You can purchase yours today with an exclusive 20% discount just for all our listeners. And what's the promo code, Dave? Happy Pair 20. So H-A-P-P-Y-P-E-A-R 20. And that's VivoBarefoot.com. Yeah, Happy Pair 20 for 20% off. Yeah, I would really recommend trying them. I think they're wonderful. Game changer. So yeah, thanks, Mel. Without further ado, we give you the podcast. Just good That's a good so like set. you recently went plant-based didn't you John so, well, even, even just before we wrote it back last time we talked to you like we did a podcast with you we went through the full backstory up until you were living in the Alps and you were you know you were out training away in the Alps and you couldn't believe how beautiful it was and you just moved to Alpe d'Huez and, and we you are going to come visit you you we were promise. delighted with life and we said we were going to come visit you and we still haven't but we will um, so, so that was as far as we got. And I remember you'd literally, you'd just kind of had a realization. You'd kind of, there was cows or horses that used to pass by every morning. And that kind of almost seemed to, you, you seemed to connect or have some compassionate, empathic relationship with these animals, realizing that that's what I'm eating. And it seemed you were, like you, that, that you were on that journey. 
yeah, like it, it all stemmed back because when I when I when I first originally come to France um, for training camps years ago, and then when I started like contemplating whether to move here permanently, um, I was out here on my own, so I had a lot of time to process my environment. So as a child, I grew up in London. So I grew up in a city. We had a cat. We had a dog. Um, but I was never exposed to wildlife or nature. Like I, I, as a child, like we wouldn't go on holidays to like mountainous areas or, or, or areas that were like profoundly powerful with nature. Um, I had a park next to where I lived, but it wasn't really that sort of um, green, shall we say. It was more like just concrete football pitches everywhere. Um, so I never really had this relationship with animals as a kid. Um, and I never used to process what I was actually eating. Like it was a chicken, um, it was it was pork, it was beef. Um, my mum is Irish. All my grand my grandparents are Irish. So we used to like my mum's like delicacy on a Sunday was uh, um, boiled bacon with potatoes and everything, put in a big stew. Um, and that was what I can remember, like as a kid growing up. And like I said, I didn't really have this relationship with animals, so like I didn't really process what I was putting in my body. And then when I come to France and I was on my own at the beginning because come on a training camp and no one else could come because of COVID. It was a bit difficult for people to travel still. And I used to go and watch the sunset every night. Um, so I live on the top of the mountain, but there's also there's, there's a little part where you can go up on this path and you, you get a better view of the sunset and behind the mountains. And there's an equestrian centre up here and they would put a few horses out into one of the fields. And when I would go up to this spot to watch the sunset, um, I just one day just saw these horses in this field. Um, I knew the equestrian centre was there, but I never saw these, these, this field with these horses in before. But in the evening, they were there, and I'd walk up, and, and I just saw them. And as you do when you see like, animals for the first time, you're like, oh, wow, like, and, and sort of I stroked the horse, and, and I went off and watched the sunset. And I, I went up every night, and then I started taking some carrots and apples up for the horses. And then sort of you start developing this relationship with this animal. And one evening, when I've gone up there, uh, there was a white horse and this dark brown horse. And literally, like, I kept saying to my friends when, when they did start coming out, like, watch what these horses do when they see me. And my friends just thought, like, it was just like I was a nutter. Like, they just thought, no. And the minute the horses saw me walk up to the field, instantly they walk over to me. Now, obviously, it was because I was feeding carrots and that, but they recognised me. And then I had this, like, sensation that this animal can actually, like, process who I am. And it, and it memorises me and it knows who I am as a person. And I was, I was literally one night just patting this horse on its nose and I just looked into its eyes and I just felt like a hypocrite. And I also didn't like, like, again, where I live, um, seeing the cows and the sheep in lorries being transported around and you see their noses poking out of the size of lorries. Um, and to me, it reminded me of like being in prison. And, and again, I'd never been exposed to like animals and agriculture before like this, like I, in fields where, where like cows are going to be killed. And, 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 Obviously, they're in the Alps, these animals, so they're, they're getting looked after better. But the end result is they're still going to die um, for human consumption. And, and, it, and all of these things just suddenly connected up in my head. And I, and I felt like a hypocrite. I felt like the way I perceived my life on Earth. And, and I just thought that animal has as much right to live as what I do. And then from that evening, that was it. I, I, I stopped eating meat. I stopped drinking dairy products. Um, and actually I did a podcast with Rich Roll the other day and I didn't actually realise the levels of veganism that there is, but Rich was like sort of educating me on this, but like, I don't, I don't use honey. Um, I, I got all the leather seats out of my car. Um, and I went to, I thought you went, I went vegan to, level three, John. I went, I, but again, I never realised, 
apparently there's another level where you have a vasectomy and you don't have children and stuff. I, I, Rich was informing me about that level of veganism. Wow. So it was all new. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a very insightful podcast. A lot of learnings from it that I've realised that I thought I was like virgin on the more extreme vegan. And then I realised there's about another 10 levels of it. <laughs> Ah, uh, well, I, th- I think it's just an, it's an ideal and everyone has to find their own relationship with it. And ultimately it's about compassion and connection and empathy and doing on to others as you'd see fit doing on to yourself. Because we like, found often vegan communities can be very judgmental about any little small flaw. And it kind of reminds me about like just judgment, just how it can be so like unmotivating or kind of whatever that word is, where it kind of almost like like deflates you, you know, the way like you could be doing an amazing thing and then you put a little bit of honey in your tea and someone's going, and jumps on you. And it's like, we're all trying to do our best. We're all imperfect humans fumbling along on this little revolving rock that's going around the sun and trying to be as compassionate as we can, really. Yeah, definitely. I've even found it like since I made that change and and I don't preach to people about it. Like I say, this is, if people ask me, like what I find people find quite interesting is because I compete at sport, at a high level, um, like the advice at the beginning when I first started, nearly every person I knew that competed in sport said, you're going to get sick and you're going to get injured and you're not going to be able to sustain that workload. Like, and it, and then that reinforced in my head that actually maybe they might be right. But, I, and honestly, I'm not just saying this, I was willing to suffer in the performance context because my, my principles meant more to me. And when I made that conscious decision that night that I wasn't going to eat meat and I wasn't going to drink dairy products anymore, um, I didn't really care if it did have a detrimental effect, but it does make you think people kept saying it to me and they kept saying, oh, you're going to be lacking this, 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 you're not going to have enough protein. And, and I was waiting for, for that collapse off the edge of the cliff to come. So I, when I was training week in, week out, 25, 20 hours, 30 hours a week, I'm thinking, oh, it's going to, it's going to catch me. Yeah. It's going to get me. Maybe, maybe when I start a training block in October, maybe I'll get through like November, December, and November, December come, and I felt amazing. And then January come, February come, and I felt amazing. And genuinely, like, I'm 39 years old now, and, like, I've, I've trained basically nearly every day since I was 26 years old in prison, in that segregation cell. And genuinely, because I know my body, and my body is so sort of finely tuned, so if I'm off a bit, I know I'm off. I can really feel it. Because when I go and exercise and or when I'm training, I, I can really feel I'm not quite right. There's something, I'm lacking a bit of energy or there's something not right in me. And, and, I, and I know I can feel it so, so, so delicately. And it never come. And actually, I'm genuinely mean this. And this isn't like me being a PR, like vegan promotion for, uh, of a vegan diet now. But I am in the best shape I've ever been in in my life. I've, I've been injured less. Um, my sleep's amazing physically like riding running swimming i'm in the best shape i've ever been in in my life um and i and i know for myself it has worked and i know probably some people listen to this it might not work for them to the degree in which i've done it but for me it has worked and i've been able to perform at a high level and i'm still setting pbs at 39 years old um which which is incredible which is incredible like even the guy that coaches me um Again, like, he was very dubious at the beginning. He said, look, you just need to be very careful with how many calories you're eating, you're getting enough food in. Um, just monitor if you're, you start getting sleep disruption, because that's, that's normally a, a, a sign of overtraining. If your sleep becomes very disruptive, you start getting um, insomnia or broken sleep. And, and I had the complete opposite. And yeah, the proof's in the pudding. Like Physically, 
I'm in the best shape I've ever been in since I've been alive. And, and aligned for- with your values, which is amazing too. Like it's like, like it's- a, 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 one question really comes up with me is like how, like it's a huge transformation. Like you've come from this kind of very macho orientated, I imagine a prison environment where it's very lads and it's very, you know, it's kind of the real masculine aspect of male life. And now here you are kind of being more nourishing and considerate and empathetic and compassionate. It's like a huge shift. It's almost like you're kind of getting in touch with your more feminine side, which I think is beautiful, which I'm like, how does that, like, how have you managed that personally? Because when you meet, imagine friends from that know you from that other side of your life, imagine people like, wow, John, you're like a different human. And in many ways I can really relate to it because we went through a similar transformation. Do you know, do you know what? I, I think in my own personal um, regards, I let go of that life and my ego. So I genuinely don't care what other people think and what other people's opinions, like what other people's opinions on me aren't my business. That's their concern. Um, so I do what's best for me and what fits in with my values and what's best for my life. Um, and again, I know as a young man growing up in a very masculine environment, it might be quite hard to make that decision, but I've spoken to like a lot of young people about my choices. And again, I don't preach. I say, look, this is what I did um, for these reasons. Um, and and, I, and for me, it works. I think it's, it's been one of the best things I've done performancely. Just as a performance athlete, it's been one of the best things I've ever done. But in regards of just being empathetic and stuff like, yeah, I just, I don't, I didn't care what anyone else thought of me. Um, and, I, and, I, and I didn't when I let go of my old life. Like I had to let go of that ego. Um, my identity was wrapped up in a very masculine environment, being a very like alpha male. Um, but as I've progressed and, and grown in life and, and I've experienced more and more things and I've seen more and more of the planet, you realise how insignificant we actually really are. Um, and that at the end of the day, we, like you said, we're floating around in space in this tiny little blue planet around the sun and um, we're all going to die one day. So you just have to live your life to your, to your best, best self and your values and stay true to yourself. That's beautiful. It's so true. Like I really, I agree with that 100%. And the challenge is kind of realizing that we're all sold these, these allures, like modern culture kind of, you know, has the, the main paradigm to be successful. You need to have lots of money and a house and a car and get married and have kids and be well-educated and have abs. And, you know, there's all these kind of almost we're subconsciously fed these type things. Whereas what you said, I think is so true that like life is quite, you know, it, it goes in a blink we're on a rock spinning around, you know, in space. And, you know, it's about living our values and being authentic with ourselves, and ultimately having a better relationship with ourself. Because the more, the better our relationship with ourself is and the more comfortable we are in ourself, the less we're kind of looking outside of ourselves for deeper meaning and peace and joy and whatnot. Most definitely. And life, life is so fragile. Like when no one's guaranteed tomorrow, you're not even guaranteed the next second. So like I always, I always have this sort of outlook on life. Or I've developed it over the years where, it's like keeping myself in the present and being content. Cause I think sometimes people like confuse happiness and contentment. Like I was guilty of this, like nothing was ever good enough. So if I ever did anything, I would never be in the present. The minute I did it, I was like, what's the next thing? Um, and I was never at peace and, and sort of in the present and in the present moment. And now I've learned as I've got older to really enjoy that because that's all you've ever really got. Like that's it. You haven't got tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. You're just in the constant now. And when I went back to the UK last week and I did this project called Open Doors, which was opening up school facilities across the UK to children from like disadvantaged communities had a safe place to go in the day. They had healthy, nutritious food, they had access to positive role models with the teachers and the youth centres like were able to send staff down to these school facilities and work with the kids throughout the day. And I was sitting in the playground with all these children 
And, and like years ago, I would have constantly been thinking, right, what can I, how can I grow this? How can I make it bigger? But I was just sitting with these little kids and I was so content. And I thought, Do you know what? If I died now leaving this school in my car, I'm good. Like, I feel happy. And I did. I felt so, I had this sense of contentment. And, it, and it's such a beautiful place to be in because before, it's like you're always searching for something else. You're all, it's always something else. And, you, and you're, never con- you're never consciously in the moment and enjoying what you've done. Like 10 years ago, so it's, 10, it's nearly 10 years to the day I got released from prison. So if I think 10 years to now, like what I've managed to do with my life and, and, and how sort of I've grown as a person. So I've developed so much from the person that got released 10 years ago like through life experiences. And, and that's one of the biggest learnings that I've learned at, through that journey over the last 10 years. It's about being content contentment is the key i think to filling up a, a more sense of happiness yeah because contentment is something that we're seldom sold because contentment it's all about understanding our enoughness you know the way very few people go i i've had enough i'm i'm grand i don't need any more you know the way because often people are like you know might ask what do you want for your birthday and most people are like, i need this and i need this and this and you know i i think that's something that i try to cultivate in my kids it's like I think the richest person isn't the person that has the most, it's the person that needs the least. And I think, most definitely. Great, I think it's such a great reminder and such a great, like, like just how we can cultivate more enoughness in our society. And I know enoughness sounds weird. And, and I was going to ask John, like over that 10 year window that you've been out, because you've got like, you're, what you're saying is like every sing, single person listening, I'm sure has gone, I totally agree. How do I get more of that? What do I do? Like, what is your, what's the journey been that's led you? Because there's like, what you're saying is like great spiritual truths. Like it really is. And there's a, there really is a spiritual tone to everything that you're saying, whether it's, you know, whether you prescribe to that word or not, it's like, ultimately all of us want to be more in the present moment, be more kind of grateful for what there is and uh, feel more a sense of contentment. And what's been your journey over the last 10 years since getting out of prison? I think one of the biggest uh, things in my life has been my openness to opportunity and experiencing different people um, and not sort of being in this like tiny little tribe echo chamber and putting myself in environments where I've met new people that have created awareness in me by having conversations with them. Because again, got out of prison, consumer being an athlete, that was it. Um, now, again, it's a journey that I've gone on. Now, at the beginning, sport to me was just this like, physicality it was like I want to be good at something because to me in my mind the connection I made when I was in prison when I realized I was good at sport was the better I am athletically at something it's going to sort of negate all the bad I've done with my life and I'm not just going to be known as that man that spent all of those like years in prison and got two life sentences so it was like me trying to sort of recreate myself through sport and I become consumed with being an athlete when I got out um which was quite toxic at the time like it was very very toxic I got really sick I overtrained I was so consumed with being the best athlete I could be. But then as I've gone through this process through my life and, and, I've, and, and I overtrain, I hope that led to me getting a coach, which led to me trusting people because before I was very distrusting of people. I didn't want people in my life that I didn't really know. That stems back from when I was a kid. My stepdad used to say to me all the time about not trusting people unless they're in your inner circle. And I used to always think when I got out of prison competing in sport, no coach would ever want it as bad as I wanted it. So I would never entrust my sort of my physical prowess to someone else to coach me. Um, but when I got really sick, that changed my mentality because, again, it was like growth mindset. I can't coach myself. I haven't got the skills. So then I looked outside. I found a, an amazing coach who started coaching me, built up this trust with him. 
And then through that journey, I've been in what I've realized sport, it isn't just the physicality of it. And it, it was more the people it brought into my life and the opportunities it brought into my life. And then I was, and I was listening to different people from different walks of life. Um, and then from that, that manifested itself into me working in the community more. And then I started going into communities and working with people that I would never normally interact with um, before. And then that just opened up this whole new awareness to, to life and how some people got so much and some people got so little um, and really like experiencing that and seeing it. Um, and, it. and again, all of these things have profoundly changed me. And then um, watching people that I knew that I was close to dying and realizing how fragile life is. Um, and like I said, like life's not given to any of us. And I think all of us are guilty of taking it for granted, um, but we're all on a ticking time clock. Um, and I think when you realize that, it makes you live your life in a very different way because then you, you prioritize what's really important and what's not. So like, I want to surround myself with people that are going to like facilitate me growing as a person. I don't want negative, toxic people in my life. Um, and sometimes it is hard. Like when it's family, um, it can be difficult to cut those people away, but I did that. I had to do it and I did do it. And, and all of these people that I did cut in my life that were negative and, and they weren't aiding me growing as a person, um, that's when I realized my life got like exponentially better when I, when I made those tough decisions, but I just wanted to surround myself with positive people, put myself in positive environments where it was going to sort of facilitate me growing. And then you then realize when you give back, that's what's important in life is helping other people. Like I, I had this thing as a kid and as a young man, where legacy to me was about like having a book, people remembering you having loads of money and really realize what, as you get older, what you realize is that legacy and, and having a positive impact in the world is about what you do for other people. Because when I'm dead, if I've impacted on one of those kids at that open doors program in the summer, and just by that interaction with me and the fact that they've been part of something that I helped create, that their lives are going to be better. Like those kids won't even remember me probably, but I have had such a positive impact on their lives. Like their kids' kids' lives are going to be better. And it's like a chain that lives on from the moment they met you or interacted with you or something that you did. So I know I've got oh, I've gone off on one there, but yeah, well, I'd just say be susceptible to, to, to different situations, different environments, different people, and put yourself out there and sort of manifest positive things coming into your life um, and not being blinkered. I think sometimes, again, I was guilty of it. I was very blinkered into one thing. And when I expanded my mindset and it was like growth mindset, and I wanted to learn and learn off people. Um, my life got so much better from that. It's almost like about exposing yourself to more diversity because like through diversity, we become more resilient and more, I guess, empathetic ultimately, isn't it? Because as we get to know more people and we realize, like I remember hearing you talk about it before when you were in maximum security prison and you told all the other lads were scumbags and you'd see, you'd look through them. And then one day you heard them talking about Arsenal and you heard them talking about family and you started to go, oh, they're human just like me that have problems and issues. And suddenly empathy started to grow and you got to see them as human too. And similarly, I think the more we can expose ourselves to different life circumstances, the more we can be empathetic and more rounded, more wholesome humans. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder, John, do you have any, like in terms of like, I agree with everything you said, like be open, you know, be grateful, expose yourself to surround yourself with people that support you and expand your own awareness, 
you know, have a faith in life and all these type of things. I totally agree with all those principles. And I wonder are the daily things which you do, like, you know, because some people are into journaling, some people meditate, some people kind of pray. And is, sport, like, is sport your prayer? Service, like, yeah. like a service. I see you, I see you talk about service, being of service to the world. And that seems to be something which is like baked into your very DNA now. And I just wondered, like, literally on a daily basis, are there things which you do that kind of help cultivate this mindset? Because like listening to you, like your mindset is like you are like you just seem like you're you're so wired to you know for contentment and for you know looking for the good in life yeah um sport one yes is um i find sport a very trend like it's transcendence um especially when i get fit like i'm very fortunate i live in a beautiful place in the world so i'm running on trails i'm i'm cycling in the mountains i go out i prefer training on my own i do like 99 percent training on my own i enjoy I it I saw a cool video of you walking up amongst glaciers and you just look like the happiest man, like walking past glaciers. And you're speaking like such wisdom. It was like, John, that was beautiful. You're plugged in. Oh man, yeah. like honestly, like sometimes I, I go out on my own and I might go and walk for six or seven hours all on my own, right? And um, I don't know, if, I maybe shouldn't say this, but years ago when I was very young, I've taken drugs before. So I know what that feeling feels like to have like a, a to be stimulated um, pharmaceutically wise. And I've been out before in the mountains walking and I've had that sensation of this like transcendence. Honestly, like the hairs on my neck have stood up and like my arms, my hairs have stood up and you're watching like eagles in the sky and you're seeing butterflies and all the colors become so vivid. Um, and this connection with nature and it's, it's incredible, but sport, um, I love the to be able to physically use my body to like propel myself up mountains. So it's like, I, I always imagine like the mountains drawing the energy out of my body and you're having this exchange of energy with the mountain. Um, and it's so, it's so powerful. It's so, so powerful. So in regards of my prayer or what I do with my journey, really me using my body physically in the environment I'm in or anywhere in the world, like I, I, even when I was in prison, like I never really saw it through that lens of, when I was on that rowing machine doing what I was doing, it was the more of the transcendence out of prison. Like that rowing machine gave me a, a, a window or a doorway outside of prison. And, and I sort of like elevated myself out through physical activity. Um, so sport and exercise has always, always been very important to my life. Um, not just to be a performance athlete, but actually like to, to, to live day to day. And it sets you up in such a great place. Um, and then going back to what I said about the service uh, a moment ago on the podcast, I feel like, like I have a duty as a human because I've been very fortunate to discover something by chance that I was very good at. And that basically allowed me to completely do a 180 in my life and travel down a, a, a positive road and then bring incredible people into my life and, and, and be in such an amazing environment. I want to I want to give back and I want to be of service to other people so other people can have the same opportunities or opportunities to live the sort of life that I live. And it doesn't mean they're doing the same things as me, but it's to feel the way I feel now. Um, I think everyone has a right to, to at least have a chance to, to be in that place. So, like, I want to show other people what's possible. Years ago, I was written off as a piece of shit that got two life sentences that was stuck in a maximum security prison, locked up for 23 hours a day, put in a segregation cell for a, for, for, for a full calendar year, locked up for 24 hours a day, 
Now, if I've managed to do what I've done in my life, I want my life to be the embodiment of what's possible. Um, what you can do, no matter how deep and dark that hole you think you are in, you can always get out of it. You can always get out of it and you can't ever give up. So when I do what I do and I put videos up, I sort of try to like inspire and motivate people to show, look, you can do something incredible in your life. Like you can be in incredible places. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. And you have to make really tough life choices. Like me coming here, living here, I probably earn 60% less than what I earn in London. But I don't care because my quality of life is so much better than what it was in London. Um, so it, again, it's making those tough choices. And I know some people have kids and it might not be as easy, but you can always make tiny tweaks to your life to improve the quality of your life. Amazing. Amazing. Totally, totally agree. In terms of, say, like when you were growing up, John, you, I remember you telling us that um, you always had a dream of owning BT Telecom and money was, was your aim. You were just this hungry man on a mission. Like, how have you kind of rewired yourself? Because, you know, we all have this social programming, this underlying subconscious programming, you know, that kind of, the hungry ghost, the hungry ghost, like this emptiness inside that needs feeding. How have you managed to kind of rechange your relationship with money? Because now you said you're kind of earning sixty percent less, and you're there's almost like a touch of holy man off you. Like there really is for for someone to have reach a point where you know you're you're the material the material illusion which all of us are fumbling around in. Most of us are you know trying to buy a house and buy a car and have enough. You know a lot of us are like money is is kind of driving a lot of people's choices. Whereas you seem to be very, you know, contentment is your driver and service and whatnot. And I just wondered if you could talk about that journey from, you know, money being a God to where now it really, you know, it's a servant and it's it's a tool to exchange and that's it. Yeah, like money, when I was a young kid, like I made an attachment like to success to money. Like when, when I found out my dad had died before I was born, my mum explained to me that that had happened. Like my mum was pregnant. She was eight months pregnant with me. My dad was 38 years old. They'd only been married for 12 months. He goes to bed, doesn't wake up. There's a massive heart attack in bed um, next to my mum. And then one month later, I'm born, no dad. And then grew up in a really loving household. Um, my, like, my mum, you can imagine, Irish family. I had like seven aunties. I had my sister. So I was adopted on as a little boy. I was the only boy. So everyone like was used to just love me so much. And, and I had an amazing childhood. Um, my mum was a florist. She used to go to work five days a week. She loved her job. She was really creative. Absolutely beautiful woman, my mum. Like, and I know it's my mum and I probably would say this, but she genuinely is one of the most sort of compassionate, giving people that I've ever come across in my life. She sees a homeless person on the street. She would give them half the money in her purse. And, and that's what my mum is like. And it was only when I started realising I didn't have a dad because kids used to tease me at school. And my mum, I went home and my mum explained to me my dad had died before I was born. And like I didn't think it was not normal not to have a dad, but obviously it was because everyone else had dads and I didn't. And sort of this, this did something to me as a little kid where when I realised that I wasn't going to live forever, this triggered this unbelievable drive in me that when I was older, I wanted to accomplish something in my life. Like I, I can vividly remember it. It made me so ambitious as a child. Um, and I grew up in the era of Margaret Thatcher. So you, you're seeing like on the news every night and everything was about the individual and you taking responsibility and you being rich. And, and you're seeing all these people working in the city of London with big watches on their wrists. And, and it was like all the yuppies with massive mobile phones. And I grew up in that generation. And I'm, I, was, I used to love the news as a kid. So I'm, I was seeing all this stimuli. And then my mum's ex-husband come out of prison when I was eight. 
He was a notorious armed robber. Um, at this point, I attach having financial wealth to being successful because my dream was to own British Telecom. Because again, growing up in that era, British Telecom was everywhere. Every street corner had a BT phone box. Everyone in everyone's um, home phones were BT landlines. This was like no mobile phones existed at this point. So I'm seeing this everywhere, BT, BT, BT. And that was my dream, was to own British Telecom when I was older because my uncle said they make billions of pounds. So it just strengthened that sort of um, connection to success to money. And then, like I said, my mum's ex-husband got out of prison when, when I was eight. And he was a prolific armed robber. He was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old. He just got released after seven, 16 years in prison. And he showed me a path to make that money. Like I, I didn't have anyone in my life that was like an entrepreneur. I didn't have a Richard Branson. I never had like, I didn't grow up around elite level athletes that channeled that ambition into something else. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see another road to travel down. So then suddenly my stepdad opened up this world to me, like this pipeline and showed me all of this money, all of these men with these massive houses, cars, watches, very frivolous with money, did what they wanted when they wanted. So then obviously then that was the way I thought I was going to make this money. And, and, I, and when I was 12 years old, that was when I consciously made that decision. That's the life I wanted to live. Because again, as you're, when you're a young kid growing up in this environment of organized crime, it's, it's very intoxicating. It's exciting. It's like cowboys and robbers. Like you, 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 oh, sorry, cowboys and Indians. You, 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 you get drawn into that world. You get completely sucked into it. Um, and then it becomes completely normalized to you. That's it. So then it just sparked, as I got older, this drive. Like my, my stepdad always used to say to me when I was 18 years old, he was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old through committing armed robberies. And he always used to say to me, do you think you're going to have more money than what I had when I was 21? And that was my goal. Like when I was 21, I wanted to have a million pounds. Like that's how I saw success and how I measured it. And I go to prison, I come out, I'm doing everything. I'm still committing crime. I go back to prison when I'm 22. Even when I was in prison, I still had this dream when I got out, I went to be a multimillionaire, I wanted 10 million pounds. For every year they put me in prison, I wanted a million pounds compensation, like recompense for them taking my life off me, never accepting responsibility for my actions, put myself in there. And then my best mate died in the pursuit of making money in a robbery in the Netherlands. And this was the catalyst for me changing my life around because I realised again how precious life is and this, this, this sort of awakening that I had when I was in that prison cell and I found out my best mate died at 26. So my relationship with money was very toxic to the degree where I gave up um, and through my own actions, 10 years of my life on earth, sitting in a six by 12 foot cage. So when I went through that journey of realizing how precious my life was, and then I looked at the damage that all of these people that I looked up to as a kid were either dead or in prison through the pursuit of money, I made a decision that night when, when I decided not to engage in criminal activity again, that money would never be my God never ever again be my god it would never drive any decisions i ever made the rest of my life i get out of prison i never had nothing like nothing everything i owned when i was in prison i gave it away so when i come out i had nothing i was staying at my mum's in the spare bedroom um i couldn't even pay a rent on it at the beginning but like, i had nothing when i got released i was having to work in the park as a personal trainer and i was earning like 30 pound an hour training people in the winter and freezing cold in the park I used to have a little bag of weights, but I was sort of 
highly motivated to be an athlete. And that was what I was protecting. I thought, as long as I can just make enough money to support myself to train full time, that's, I know that will pay off sport. And, and again, I never had nothing. And it took years and years and years of self-belief that I knew me being an athlete would pay off, but there was no endorsements. There was no nothing, like literally nothing. And then, and then slowly things did start happening. It took four years, three and a half, four years, and things slowly did start happening. And the best thing that happened that I would say I was most proud of in that moment, because I never had nothing when I got out of prison for like the first three and a half years. Um, it was only when people started wanting to work with me. And I remember I was offered an opportunity to work with a brand and I didn't want to work with them. Right. I, I didn't want to work with them because it to me, it didn't it didn't ignite anything in me. I didn't see the, the, the greater purpose of that relationship other than just being very transactional. And I remember they told me a sum of money um, and it, it was quite a lot. And I said, no, I'm all right. Like my principles meant more to me and my values and what I wanted to do with my life. And it was so nice because like my granddad used to say to, say to me all the time, talk's cheap, money builds houses. So you can say these things, but when something's put in front of you in black and white and you can look at it and you can go, yeah, I'm all right, thanks. I'm not making that decision based on money. I'd rather be earning less money working with these people the more money working with you and I haven't really got any connection to you whatsoever. I honestly walked out of that meeting and it felt so good because I was tested. I was actually tested. Like there was something lucratively put in front of me and I walked away from it because my beliefs and the promise I made to myself that money wouldn't be my God and it wouldn't decide what I, what I wanted to do in my life in, the, in regards to my values. I wouldn't sort of compromise them. Amazing. Yeah, it really is. Amazing just to like to have that, you know, I, I'd say you left there feeling richer than if you did sign it, you know, that way. Yeah. Because like ultimately integrity is a value that modern day society, we don't celebrate anymore. You know, people, the other, if you had a sign. It's certainly in pop culture. Yeah. In popular pop, culture. In lots of popular a, culture. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I wonder, I wonder if you could talk, there's two things I'd love to talk to you about. One is I'd love to talk more about like what you eat on a daily basis and how like particularly now you've been training like hundreds of kilometers in a day like massive like ultra endurance cycling races and whatnot and like that must demand a lot of calories and, and even you like you sent me a message there the other say saying that you're doing some race and you, you were going to consume thirty thousand calories in a day and i'm like thirty thousand calories between it's actually between 15 to 20 if oh, sorry between sorry but yeah. I, I'm prone to exaggeration. Up, Excuse me. That's, that's like, and when you're eating plant-based, you're eating vegan food, like that's, you know, that's a lot of matter. Like it's a huge volume of food. Like it's kind of like half a car full of food, like that you got to eat and what comes in has to come out as well. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, so in regards to my day-to-day eating, it can shoot like my breakfast is massive, like massive, massive, massive breakfast. Um, cause I, I normally start, well, depending on what the weather's like here, like in the winter, I have to change my training around because it gets too cold and the snow and stuff. So I wouldn't be able to go and ride my bike for six hours, but say for instance in the summer, um, or the spring or the autumn, I'm able to get out for four or five hours on the bike, um, in the morning. So I'd get up at six. I would normally have like a massive bowl of porridge with, with, um, with half a pack of berries, <laughs> loads of nuts, um, soy milk. Then I have a coffee um, and then I probably leave it about two hours before I go out on the bike. Then when I'm on the bike, um, I try to, I don't, don't touch gels or anything like that in the, in the, in the sort of, um, when I'm not racing, I only normally start testing that stuff near racing because I don't like putting it into my body. So I'll be eating bananas. I'll take almond nuts out on the bike with me. 
Um, I have like vegan banana bread that I make. Um, I try to consume about 50 to 60 grams of carbs per hour. Um, come back. And then obviously you're in France. So straight away, I, I like to get the French bread. I get peanut butter. I've always, always like, I'm like, I was, I was like it when I was in prison. Like to me, food has always been fuel. I've never really ate food for the enjoyment of eating it. So like, I could genuinely eat the same food every single day and it wouldn't bother me, which I basically did when I was in prison. I used to eat porridge. And obviously this was before I was vegan. I used to have like tins of tuna fish in bottles and make them into protein drinks and stuff. Um, so then I come back and I have like avocado, hummus, peanut butter, French stick, loads of fruit. Like, I, I eat fruit all the time. I snack on it throughout the day. Um, I also supplement because of the calorific output I do put in. So when I'm in big blocks of training, like I would use fuel products. So I use fuel drinks. I normally have two a day. So there's like a few hundred calories there, so 600 calories. And then in the evening, um, I'd have like a salad, put nuts in it, olive oil. Um, I'm getting better because at the beginning, I was really bad with all this vegan stuff because everything was just easy. And I was just like, yeah, just, I was a bit lazy. But obviously you start putting a bit more attention into like making stuff because you have, especially living in France, like it is very difficult um, to go out for meals in France and ask for vegan like food because like there's been a lot of occasions where I've been in a restaurant and you say, can I have like a vegan pizza? And then like they come and there'd be cheese on it and then they take the cheese off and then they come back and put something like feta or something on it. Or you ask for like a, a vegan salad and they put tuna fish in it. <laughs> so like it kind of very difficult. So, but in the evenings, like I would just have like lentils, rice. I have, I try to eat a lot of salad as well. A lot of nuts in the salad, um, olive oil, some more breads. Again, I, I am addicted to breads. So that's bad. It's because I've been here. <laughs> It's bad, it's bad, it's bad, but uh, I don't, that is my weakness. Uh, yeah, French, French, French brown bread. It's just brown bread. That's your favorite, or French baguette, or what is it? Like we've a no, baker. I don't, so I'm I'm not, yeah, I don't really like the baguettes. I don't really like the texture. I like. I prefer like they do like um like a brown um, bread up here, which is which is really really good. And then during the course of racing, like when I did the Tour de Mont Blanc uh, three three weeks ago, um, in that race, like that was that was three hundred and thirty kilometers and nearly climbing Mount Everest in, in ascent, which was 8,500 meters of climbing on the bike. So that took me just under 13 hours. And during the course of that race, um, I was basically eating a lot of avocados um, at the aid stations. I had uh, a support vehicle following me and they was, they was waiting at the aid stations. Um, and I would, again, eating uh, bananas, I had nuts, um, I had electrolyte powders, um and that sort of that that fueled me to burn out twelve thousand calories in that ride so it's wow. a lot it's a lot of it's a lot of energy output but that's a lot of avocados man, that's a lot that, that must be well. that must be like two like 50 avocados well, so i'm thinking this is, this is what's funny this is what's funny so why that happening no one really realized the the amount of avocado i'd be consuming throughout this ride so it was quite funny when we got, when, so basically the ride, the race starts off in France and you go from France into Switzerland, into Italy. So you go around, so basically Mont Blanc is on your right the whole day. So you go through three different countries, right? So obviously by the time we get to Switzerland, like I need more, we need more food, right? We need more food. We're running out. Like I'm killing the potatoes, which they made for me with all this salt. I'm licking them off at the A station, like getting the potatoes, like literally put it in and sucking the salt off the potatoes because it was 40 degrees. It was so hot and I was craving salt. And um, 
when they dropped into Switzerland, they went into this supermarket and like my friend spent, this is not a joke, nearly a hundred euros on avocados because they are so expensive in Switzerland. She, and when she come out, like she didn't tell me as it was afterwards, she had a bag of this big bag of avocados and she was like, this is like gold. Like they literally is as expensive as gold in Switzerland. So if anyone's going to buy avocados and you're going through Europe, try to sort of circumvent buying them in Switzerland. and then you're doing this big race isn't it mbt or ubt i remember watching a load of videos you sent it on to me looks pretty insane this is the pinnacle of races yeah i can't wait like i'm so so it's the utmb it's one of the most famous races ultra running races in the world so it's basically like their version of the world cup you get the best ultra runners in the world. They have to all qualify for it. And it's 110 miles with 10,000 meters of climbing, I think. So the um, event organizers that run UTMB PR, they contacted me um, and basically wanted to see whether I would like to participate. But I'm going to do the shorter version of the UT. So within the week, there's other races. But to be there and to experience that race week and actually like take part in one of the races and see some of the greatest ultra runs on the planet, it's just such an incredible privilege and I cannot wait. Honestly, like when I found out I could race it, I was so happy just to be there. Like I'm not doing the actual big one, like the, the like the world championship version of it, the UTMB CCC, I think it is. I'm doing the 42K version of that, like, of, of a race there. Um, but yeah, to be part of that whole week. And then next year, my big challenge um, and something that I really, really am focused on, on achieving is to win the race across France on my bike. So it's 2,600 kilometers. It's climbing Mount Everest four times. So 33,000 meters of climbing. Um, the record is four days and 22 hours. So um, that is what I'm going to pursue and train my body to become as efficient at racing that distance as I can. Um, and that's going to be my big goal for 2023. What? And is that wow. a race or is that John just setting up on his pursuit no, of no, this? No, it's, it's, it's a race. So you get different versions of the race. You get assisted and unassisted. I'm doing mine assisted. Um, I want to demonstrate that you can race a race like that on a plant-based diet. Um, and you can do it as a vegan and perform and be competitive. Um, like I said um, to you the other day, like the calorific output, I'll probably be burning between fifteen to 20,000 calories a day riding. Um, th- with an event like that, Basically, what it comes down to is who can sleep the less, the least within the journey. So you have to really sort of manage your sleep and try to basically get enough sleep, but not too much where, where you're off the bike. Basically, you need to keep riding as, as much as you can and try to do like micro sleeps for like five minutes, 10 minutes. Um, because obviously when you're not on the bike, your average moving speed drops and obviously people will catch you up if they're not sleeping. So it, it's, it's, it's going to be very... It's going to be a very tough challenge. I've got no doubt about that. Like, but it's something I want to I want to do, and I'm really motivated to do it and and, and sort of win it. Um, but also prove that you can do an event like that on 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 a plant based diet, and you can you can be you can be really good at doing stuff like that. And um, you're not a little weakling that's sick and ill and fragile and might break. And I, and I want to demonstrate that because I think it's an important thing, especially with the platform I've now got. Um, because like you said, I've come from a world where people probably follow me um, and they think like I'm, I'm alpha male and I'm really sort of, I'm strong and masculine like person that's come from this criminal underworld and, 
and turned my life around and then gone into sport and just been like, been like an animal, like doing sport. But I want to show that you can do stuff and, and, and be a good person, like the way you see the world and see the planet. Um, and it isn't weakness, like to, to not eat animals and, and, and sort of be like you said, empathetic with the world and, and with people and, 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 and animals. It's an incredible mission. And really the whole is. sleep thing is fascinating. Like how over three to four days you can like minimize your sleep to the like and still be able to compete and still be able to like see the bends and see and you'd probably be cycling yeah. during night as well, will you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the longest the longest I've ever stayed up physically exercising was two days when I, I broke the world record for the longest continuous non-stop row on a row machine. And that was like it was just shy. I was just shy of two days. I think I did 46 hours. Um <laughs> And that was that was trippy, like because what happens? <laughs> you, you lose, you lose, you lose all sense of time. It goes like literally goes. You lose all sense. And I remember, like when I was doing it, I kept getting these like these sensations of like people standing near me, and there was no one near me. And obviously, I was starting to go into that process of like hallucinating because my body was so was getting to a point of so being so tired. But I've got experience with now what that now feels like, and I've been watching a lot of films on like some of the best ultra runners in the world and how they manage that. Cause their races are like over 200 miles on foot and they're sleeping like minutes. They're going to sleep for literally like a minute at a time and having these like power naps and then waking up and feeling like they've been asleep for two or three hours. It's incredible to watch. It's incredible to watch. So, and so, so would your strategy be that like you kind of, you know, over, over four days, like you'll end up sleeping instead of sleeping like in an eight hour chunk or a seven hour block, it'd be, little bits every now and again like every five snack hours sleep you stop snacking for- yeah you you would you yeah you like i i have to go through a plan and what that would look like but you would be like yeah you would you, you would have to make decisions based on how you felt because again this really does pull you into the present <laughs> like you really do have a better sensation of what time actually is and your body because you you become so in tune with your body at that point you have to then obviously to a degree, have a plan, but then also be quite ad hoc with how you approach what you're doing, because there might be times where you might not have a sleep scheduled for another four hours for like 10 minutes, but you might need it desperately at that point. And you're drifting off going to sleep at that moment. And you might need to stop and just have a little reset for 10 minutes, have a quick nap, get back on the bike and then go through. Um, so it's, it's kind of managing that and sort of having a plan, but then also realizing that the human body is the human body. Like you're not a machine. And there will come points where, you can fight for it. Like I remember when I did that long row um, for the 46 hours, there were parts where I felt like that. And then a couple of minutes later, I completely lifted out of it. And then I felt absolutely amazing. And then I would sink into an even deeper hole. But it's again, it's always remembering you're going to get out the other side of it. And now I've, I, I've experienced what that feels like. And that's, I think that will help me quite a lot because doing something like this on a bike, I've never done before. Um, but I've done it. I've done it extreme endurance events, doing other stuff, but not riding a bike. So, I've now got the experience from that, but obviously, obviously I have to translate that across onto riding a bike and, and I'll have a team around me as well. So obviously they can make decisions and I will have to entrust, which is, a, is an important thing, me entrusting into the team that obviously they've got my, 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 my best at heart, um, but then also they don't over like, you do need to sleep now when, I, when really I don't. Um, so it's just finding that, that balance of um, like what being able to... What role will technology play in that in terms of monitoring your heart rate or monitoring your kind of glucose levels or monitoring like, will that have a huge part to play or is it largely it'll pull down to instinct to like what you're feeling? Yeah, like I, I will, I, I, I'm like it now with training. So do I, I wear a heart rate monitor 
Um, I'm, I, I'm on training peaks. My coach can see everything I do. He can see like me like, when I'm performing. He can start seeing if, if things aren't like my, my run splits or my power on the bike's falling off a little bit. It, it, it contact me and say, yeah, you feeling and stuff like that. So like, yeah, I love data. I love, I wear my Garmin. I, I monitor, I track everything I do physically. But then also, for instance, if I don't feel great, I back off. I've learned this lesson over the years. So like um, there's been occasions where I've gone to go and run for like two and a half hours. And I've done, and I always start, sometimes I, I always start. So I always do start the session. Might get to 30 minutes and my body's like a diesel engine. It normally takes me 30 minutes to really get going on 45 minutes. And then I, I reach this like flow state. But it takes me that time for the engine to start really warming up. And, and then I start feeling amazing. But if I do get to 30 minutes or 45 minutes and then my legs feel like concrete and I have a two and a half hour run, I stop. I just stop. I got, it's, it's not giving up. It's just being clever because I realize my body on that day, for whatever reason, I might be fighting a little bug or I might have eaten something not right, right the day before or something's not right in me. I back off because I realize it's the consistency of being able to train every day is the difference between you being like, okay, or really good at something. Um, and also I don't want to jeopardize my health in the regards of I'm not able to do what I love doing. That's more important to me. So like, I don't want to get so sick where I'm not able to train for like months because I've seen that happen to other people. Like it's that one session of like you're overtrained and, and you keep digging yourself into the hole and then you, you fall into the hole completely. You can't get back out of it. And then you can't then train for months at a time. I've, I've seen people that will, haven't been able to train for over a year because they've overtrained so badly. So I'm very mindful of that. Like it's about my own well-being. Like I don't, I don't want to feel like shit. I want to make sure my body is good and it's strong and it's fit. So if my body says you need to take a little bit of time now, I take the time. Where years ago, I wouldn't have done that. And I would have felt I was being weak and I would have carried on smashing it out. So in an event like this, you're going to suffer. Obviously, that's inevitable. But you have to then remember that when you're doing it, that you're going to do it for that five days and then afterwards you can have a nice prolonged rest after it and you can just get fat again. Or like you, you can put more body fat back onto your body and stuff. Um, but it's, I like the challenge of the actual event and pushing myself in the event. Um, that, that to me, it makes me feel alive. Like it awakens something up inside me where you can't really replicate that when you do training. Because like I said, like to me, training is like reaching a state, a flow state where it's effortless and I'm bouncing, I feel light feel fit agile i feel at one with the mountain i feel connected I'm, a, I'm i'm really like there in the moment and then when i race like i like that feeling of like you're you're, you're going to push your body more than you ever do in training and, and it really awakens something up inside you and and it, you you have this like this focus it's just it's an incredible feeling you, you become at one and that's why i love racing so much is like when i did that tour de mont blanc a few weeks ago like my mate come alongside me, he was a videographer and we made a short documentary and uh, he leaned out the window and he was filming me and he, and he said, he went, how, how do you feel? And I said, mate, I am fucking buzzing. Like I felt <laughs> amazing. And he went 300K in. He went, I went, mate, I am absolutely buzzing. I felt amazing because it's the privilege to be able to physically use my body to have that sort of feeling that I'm fit and strong and healthy. And I always, I really have so much gratitude for the fact I'm able to do it. That's the most important thing. Like, I don't care really where I come. It's the fact that on that day, I've given my best and, and, and I'm so lucky and privileged that I'm physically able to do it because one day I will not be able to do it. My body just won't allow me 
the, the capacity to do it. And there's lots of people that would love to do what I do and they're not physically able to do it. So I'm so, I've got so much gratitude. I'm so appreciative of the fact that my body's strong, fit and healthy. And I, and I want to maximize that and I want to do what I can do. And so that's why I, when I do those days where I don't feel so great, I back off because I don't want to ever jeopardize that. Yeah. Amazing. I, I was wondering, like, there's, there's two kind of final things I'd love to talk to you about. And one is like, it seems like when I'm getting a sense of your spirit, your spirituality or what makes your spirit tick movement, you said movement is like one of the pillars of your life. The mountains, the mountains seem to be very central to your well-being and nature. And like a connection to the mountain. I think it's beautiful you talking about how when you're cycling up the mountain, it's almost like you're dancing, you're being pulled up. It's like, it's not you're fighting the mountain and you're trying to dominate. It. It's like, there's this kind of dance together there's a bit of harmony in it and then you've got service and then like now obviously you're eating a plant-based diet and more considered about your food choices and i just wondered are there other gratitude 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 is something like and contentment like there's all these very these recipes that are making that are parts of the puzzle that is john mcavoy and your incredible mindset and i just wondered are there other ingredients in terms of your own spirituality your mindset your outlook because those are the things that i'm getting most from chatting with you today yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny one. Me, actually, me and Rich Roll were talking about this other day on, on his podcast and we were talking about my outlook on life and how it's evolved throughout time. And, uh, and like, I, like, I think like you give life meaning by being alive and it's what you do with your limited time on earth. Um, I don't think I go anywhere after this. I think that's it. I think the lights go out and... And I and some people say it's quite morbid and it's quite depressing, but I don't like because it brings me again into the present. And I'm, I've got so much gratitude to actually being alive and being a human being, having consciousness and awareness of my environment and being able to affect it. Um, and like the odds of us being born are like one in 400 trillion. Like we we are we are fucking lucky to be alive and breathing on this planet. And, and that really is the driving force of how I live my day to day life because I want to be as content as I can in my present. Um, whatever happens tomorrow, happens tomorrow, and I'll deal with it if I get to tomorrow. But like, I want to be every day, wake up in a place that I love waking up and being in around people that I want to be around. And I construct my life to be like that. Um, and, and I know it is hard. And, and again, if you look at my life journey, being in segregation units, being around psychopaths, like from that moment to where I am, all of the decisions that I've made have led me to being where I am today. And some of them were only tiny little choices and little decisions that I made, but that later on in my life turned out to be like, absolutely massive in where I've ended up today. Like if I didn't start exercising in that prison cell those years ago, I wouldn't be where I am today. And it was just getting out of bed every morning and slowly getting a little bit better than I was the day before. Um, but yeah, I just say to people that, just remember how fortunate and lucky we are to be human beings on this beautiful planet and get to experience and see as much of it as you can before, before the lights go out, because it will for all of us. And I know it might sound quite depressing to, to end this podcast, but it's just about enjoying embracing the, the privilege of being alive on this earth and, and making the most of the limited amount of time that we've got. I, I, I saw the other day, it's like an average human gets a thousand months to live. It's like literally like 27,000 days. When you look at life through that prism, it really does change what you prioritize as being important and not important and noise and, and, and things that actually matter. Um, and like we all see it on social media and the media, always trying to scare people, just this noise all the time that makes people anxious. Just switch that stuff off 
you know what I mean? Go, go and invest time in the local community or with people that make you feel happy and just ignore all the, all the crap that goes on in the world. Beautiful. Final, final question. We were chatting with a friend the other day and she said, John, he's such a kind man. He's such a sweet man. Will you ask him, is he single or is he in a relationship? Because yeah. I'm sure loads of people listening are going, you're such a lovely man. What's the yeah, story I'm, there, John? I, I, I'm still single. That's a big, deep still, question. Yeah. Still single? <laughs> big, deep question. Oh, still single. And still, you live I'm in Alpe Isn't that right, John? I do. I do. Yeah, I don't listen. I do. Okay, I do. there you go. I do. I, maybe, maybe I might. Someone, someone did actually say to me about the best way to learn French is to meet a French girl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saying it's, the, it's the best and cheapest way. If you want to learn to speak French, meet a French woman. But I'm still single. You made you made me blush now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the shortest answer I've heard you given all day. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's an expression in Spanish: "El mejor manera para aprender el idioma is in la cama." Like the best way to learn a language is in bed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, there we yeah. Go. This, truth, this has been great fun, John. Yeah. You really are. You're so inspiring in so many ways. You're a spiritual sports star. Spreading Thank joy you. and love and contentment in the world. Yeah. And we, really. we need you, you, we need you to come out to experience this place. So we need it oh, to happen. Right? Will, we we have, need well, to will we have to cycle 150 kilometers a you day won't, if we do? You won't, you won't. I'll make it as easy as possible for you to come here and we can walk and hike and yeah, we can just Deal. spend time with Joe. Yeah, deal. I can't wait. Deal. deal. Right, you're a star. Thank you, John. Thank you. John's a legend and he's single. There you go. We've got the <laughs> what a hero. Like there's something so spiritual about how John is living his life. And I know you could say it's true sport, but everyone has, like we're all humans or we're humans having a spiritual experience, physical beings having a spiritual, whatever way. Anyway, his medium seems to be sport and I just find John an immensely inspiring human. Yeah, and something you said there, I think possibly because he's experienced such depths of life being in maximum security prisons and being in, you know, locked up and in, in a, in a cell for more than a year without getting out as well. Uh, the the prison within the prison that he's really experienced the depths of life and therefore his level of gratitude is really incredible. Like when you hear him speak it and you look, you can see his eyes, like you really get that feeling that he is so grateful for what he's experiencing. So it's such yeah, a Yeah, it brings thing. a real presence to us. Yeah, very nice and a great reminder. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. And, and uh, we will get out to Alpe d'Huez to hang out with the great John McAvoy coming yeah. soon. Yeah, there you go. There's social accountability again. We're putting it out there again this year life. I also thought it was hugely courageous as well of John putting it out there that he's going to win that race. He's not going to take part. He's going to win. Yeah. Oof. So Representing plant-based. There you go. Vegan and yeah. plant-based. So vote John McAvoy. Yeah, there we go. I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this, please do share it with others because we want to get the word out there to more people and Inspire more people, plant-based, healthy living, whatever format. It's all about living your fullest life, really, and um, having a better relationship with yourself. Yeah, so we did uh, record another podcast with John. Do check it out if you want to hear his backstory, which is phenomenal. Yeah, is. that was where we went into the full uh, bank robber backstory. Anyway, we're going to wrap wrap up now by saying thanks, Mill. Sending loads of love and wish you a great day uh, ahead. Bye, 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 bye. bye, 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 bye. bye.